So we've done this last group is, is right, we've, we've done two separate, today we're going to do a third um, Lamasa approach to the sugya we've done. And I want to outline what we did in the first one again. I want to talk about what, what we did with our cook last time and then extend it to some extent. And then I want to do the third shuvah and we'll, try, and we'll see, and then we'll think about them all together and see what they teach us about what halacha should be or, um, and is. So the first time we did the tshuva of the cheshev ha'ifod, and what happened was, he's, he's, all right, the question was whether Malamed could leave his job for a higher paying job in America. And the answer halachically plainly was yes. And the answer in the tshuva was no. <laughs> and there were no bones about it. Right? He, went through, he went through the argument somewhat skeletally on the basis of, you know, of a, a cheshbon that I still don't find comprehensible really in terms of the primary sources. But the way he set it up was, look, there are these issues on all these issues. There's obviously going to be somebody whom the Malamud who wants to leave can hold by. So if you so using Kimli, there's no way you could possibly impose specific performance on the Malamud. And that should be the Psaq, but I think he should stay. Right? That, was a very, that was a very interesting uh, outcome. And the question, the effectiveness of the outcome is going to depend entirely on the relationship between the community and the rabbi wishes of the Beit who wishes the Psaq. Because there's no pretense that it's, right, that it's generated by the formal halacha. Right? It's, just, right, it's, just a, um, it's just a claim about the right and wrong of the situation. And maybe that's really effective because he's being honest. Um, we don't, right, since we don't, we don't have the background, we don't know what the Malami does. Um, right? We don't know if the Malami listens, if the Malami listens or, doesn't, or doesn't listen. Um, and if he ran away to America, what would they do? Right, so the whole, so the only, the only thing they have to begin with is really is persuasion. Uh, right, they're going to lot right because there's no way that a um, that a, a British court would enforce specific performance. I don't think and that would probably violate anti-slavery legislation. <laughs> uh, right, there's a horror of specific performance where you could make him pay damages, but it's not clear there are any damages from the uh, right because you know he was he's a good teacher, but um, very hard to sue for damages because a teacher of quality leaves. And so there are no teachers of the same quality you can raise. That seems very hard. That was interesting. Rav Kook comes up, and Rav Kook writes a tshuva in which his absolute psaf is that we do hold you to specific performance. And he comes up, right, and he comes up with something like 18 different reasons that uh, right, there's a rap, that this rabbi is bound to specific performance. Um, but the interesting thing is that the specific performance the rabbi is bound to is his next job, not his last job. So he has to figure out, you know, whether, so it's, it, right, in practice, he rules that the specific performance is binding, but he does that to enable the person asking the question to escape his pre- right, the claims of his previous job and keep his new job. Anything the argument suggested if the question were asked before he accepted this the new job. So if you follow the arguments, right, uh, it might very well be yeah. that he would be bound by the he'd be bound by the previous job. That's so you have to be very really know what is Rav Kook trying to accomplish in this shuvah. Is he the kind of person who writes shuvot which are designed to set real precedents, mm-hmm. or is he trying to resolve this situation? Mm-hmm. And this is a, a, a perpetual problem in Europe with rabbis floating around and, and you know in communities. Community's prestige often was judged by the quality of the rabbi they could get, 
And so if you lost a major Talmud Chacham and had to replace them with somebody nobody knew about, right, that was a huge blow to your community's prestige. And so you, you fought to hold on to your rabbi. Um, it might also be you liked him. <laughs> but, uh, but I think rabbis were symbols of communal prestige. So they're really interesting, Shiva. In, in the course of it, Rav Cook makes any number of astounding arguments. So we talked about last time about his number one astounding argument. Uh, <laughs> apologies for my dress. I think I thought this just before you came also. Uh, right? He says that rabbis have too much free time for us to consider the possibility they would ever be slaves. And everyone knows. You know, you have to handle the shilas that come up, but how often do shilas come up? Uh, anyway, so, so aside from the, the, the astounding application of, the, um, of it to the rabbinate, it's a, fa- right, it's a fascinating claim overall that the prohibition against avdut is only applies to people who are completely subordinated time-wise to their employer. It doesn't apply to anybody who, who, anybody who at least very likely will have times when they can do their own thing. That's so, an interesting question. Like, you know, does that, is, does he think standard employment, employers have no time at all? Does it mean only you have no time? Like, what if you, what if they're 40 hours a day that you have to be dedicated completely? But, you know, but the rest of the time is free. So then none of this applies? Sounds like Rav Cook really thinks that. That to violate, to violate Abdut, you have to be, have all your waking hours enslaved to your employer. So, with no when, discretion, yeah. So when considering how broadly to apply this series of outstanding claims, right, that, like you pointed out, in many cases would have, um, if, if applied in other cases, could have very negative consequences. To what extent do you weigh the fact that by bringing 18 astounding claims, right, that it's, you know, partially because none of them are would be particularly compelling on their own, right, that they're, the fact that you bring 18 means that none of them in, on its own necessarily would be, you know, airtight and, and should be applied elsewhere. So it could be. It's just hard to know that, you know, Dr. Cook doesn't sound in his own mind like he's putting, like he sounds like he really believes many of these arguments. That, right, that's, the, you know, so, and many of them are really fascinating, fascinating arguments, which, you know, you, I guess what I want to write, I think he actually has a, has a, 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 a sort of unifying perspective and um, and that and that that perspective is what generates all his claims, and we have to take on the perspective per se. So let me try and see if I can establish that. Okay, so his claim number one was rabbis have free time, and therefore you're not actually right. You're not you're not, you can't be called a, a schiryom because you're not really obliged to work um, to work all day. Secondly, it says you also get paid by the job for each psak, so you're both a schir and a kablan. And a kablan can't be choser, and so why should we live? Once you can't be choser for the kablan part of your job, you can't be choser of any part of your job. Right? So we pointed out that was easily abusable because just get, right, just, you know, give somebody tips, right? Of, uh, of, um, so, uh, of something. Okay, right? Then he has a different way of framing the issue about free time. So let's uh, take a look at number four. Number four, he comes up with the argument about shutafim. We've seen already the argument that shutafim are slaves to each other. Now, where are the shutafim here? So he says... Um, he says, right, he says, fascinatingly, he comes up with the analogy of uh, apprenticeship. Right, that, um, right, right, 
שאין הנער יכול לחזור מטעם פועל, כיוון שגם הבעל מלאכה משובד ללמדו. Right? So he understands apprenticeship as the equivalent of a partnership. So this is really a, really a, a slippery slope, right? Partnerships, we can say they're equal, right? Since they're equally enslaved to each other, nobody is a slave. But Rav Kook applies it to asymmetric relationships. All that matters is that one party, that each party have some kind of shibut on the other. Right? Apprenticeship is like the, the prototypical asymmetric relationship. Right? And, sort of, right? so then, and then fascinatingly says, oh, well, look, since the community, uh, right, since the community also is obligated to show cover to the Rav in all sorts of ways, so the, right, and, maybe, and maybe the other obligations of the community towards the Rav, so, they're equal, so they're mutually, right, they have mutual obligations. You know what? Every employer pays the employee. <laughs> so all employment relationships are partnerships. It's really, it's really, it's really it's an astounding, astounding Ash, argument. Ash, uh, yeah. It says that, that, that there's an aspect of slavery in which the seaboard is enslaved. So the rabbi. Well, Meshubadim, right? They are subordinated, right? And, subordination, and mutual subordination, right? It's an amazing thing. It's an absolutely amazing, amazing claim. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Again, Rav Kook's vision of the rabbinate, you know, at that point in his life, I asked, uh, you know, I, I showed this to yeah, Yudabirsky online, and he has not so far <laughs> given me a historical context for Rav Kook's vision of the rabbinate. That would explain why he would vision it. But here's, I think, I think number five is where Rav Kook gives you, um, he gives you a general perspective on um, on what the whole issue of being Eved Lavadim is. Um, right, so he's dealing, right, he's dealing with the with the general with the question we've seen raised many times, which is whether there actually is an absolute prohibition against against enforcing specific performance, or all that happens is we say that unless there's a kinyan, there's no right that that employment contracts beginning of the work does not constitute a kinyan, and so for and so therefore all employment contracts. Um, their default is that they're at will contracts both ways, and the terms just govern the relationship while it exists, but don't demand the continuation of the relationship. But if you make a kinyan, so then you can, you can change the terms of the relationship and make it binding going forward. So Rokok adopts that approach. That actually, none of, right, halacha doesn't ban specific performance at all. It just defaults against specific performance. Um, and here's what, right, um, and here's the way he, he says it up, right? So if we take a look at, Hinei Yishlomer, Afilu lefi das hashah, Shecholek al ritva b'simen shem l'gimel sefkanit yudal, Usfirile, da afilu b'kinyan chozer bo. So even if you hold like the shah who rejects the position that a kinyan can generate specific performance, Mikal mokom ze'enu ki im bistam kinyan. That's only if we, Right, if we make the Kenyan on the employment contract without explicitly stating that it's intended to create specific performance. Sorry, should be the hyphens in the wrong place. So Rukhuk makes the amazing claim that there's not even a machlokit about whether you can generate, but everyone agrees that you can generate a contract that's binding for a specific performance on a poll. The only question is what, how much, how strong do the legal hoops you go through have to be? Now that tells you something about what it is, right? He has, he fundamentally has no concern about specific performance, and that's not his deep issue at all. And then he phrases it as something which I hopefully will be by Sheer and Ellie uh, Anshavuos. So, um, right? So if he said Vadas no no saying 
Shlo Amra Torah Shia Eved. It seems reasonable. How could the Torah possibly ban Avdus? Shadar Abba didn't even know it. Biyachol Gam Kain Gam Right? So you can't say the Torah is against slavery because the Torah permits slavery. So he starts with our basic question. Right? And I spent lots and lots of ways trying to, right, trying to figure out how we could do that. Our cook says, nope. At the end of the day, the Torah permits slavery, so how could we possibly ban it? What does he say? But because the Torah writes that it's inappropriate for Jews to be Avadim, so all we write, um, so we we have a default to interpret contracts in ways that don't generate abdus. But if you make it explicit, then it works. It is a contract to be abdus. Yeah, you're right. Allah doesn't. Allah permits um, permits uh, permits abdus. And here's the line the line I think which is really resonant, you know, American history. How could you say that people do not have enough power over themselves to be able to sell themselves into slavery? So if you're in American constitutional history, right, this is the Lochner case about whether the government can regulate, can, can, can break freedom of contract, which was seen as the fundamental freedom and regulate employment contracts by requiring overtime. Right? Right, eventually, right, by requiring minimum wages. So Rav Cook just adopts the position right, of the laissez-faire American society that fundamentally that, the, that banning slavery is a restriction of autonomy. Right? So that's, I think it's amazing. I think it's an amazing thing. Now, we, can go over Cook. we go through all the children of Cook has any number of amazing arguments. Uh, which um, where where he constructs uh, where he constructs other kinds of mutual shibudim, but I think that um, fun, right, um, fund, right fundamentally this is the argument uh, this is this is the this is the argument that matters uh, right this is the argument that matters. Cook thinks that you know, it's like the, the bookends right. I started the whole the whole series by saying that you know that there has to be some way to reconcile that. Um, but that fundamentally, I think it's a moral claim. Rav Cook thinks it's not a moral claim that restricts the really restricts the employment anyway. It's only I mean, we ask it answers certain questions beautifully. Right? We ask why is everyone focused on the evid as opposed to on the master? Rav Cook says because really, sorry, right? There's nothing wrong with the master doing it. It's just the Jews should understand they shouldn't do this. Right, that's all. So the answer is on the evid. Um, okay, so that's it. Right? If you took Rav Cook's um, positions, you would uh, right, you would end up with uh, American labor law before the New Deal, which fundamentally thinks that freedom of contract um, is the is the overriding value, and we don't really you know, and, and uh, might be that Rav Cook would agree that once you, that if you sell yourself as an evid, so then we would put in some of the. Right, some of the uh, of the protections of Avidibri as well. Might be he would say that. Uh, probably he would say that. Okay. Well, I think it's, it's, it's autonomy to, to break Hashem's will of not wanting us to be slaves. I mean, putting autonomy uh, as, as uh, paramount subverts itself. Yes. 
Right, so that's a, right. That's a big question, right? Should we allow people to enslave themselves, right? Um, but you know, could argue that so God gives us free will. So right, so He has to let us do but things. That he in, in in general, like if a person can't make a shvua to do something that's a sore, right? Yeah. So so over here, if it's I mean either either they're allowed to be a slave or they're not. But right? He says, but it's obviously in the end, the Torah says you are allowed to be a slave. Because you can sell, right? Because you can sell yourself as an evidence free. So now, if Cook could say, we could say, what do you mean? The Rambam says it's only if you're in really extreme circumstances. Right? right? Let's say that any other circumstance, the contract is possible because it's a violation of the Torah. Right? He could have said that. Rav Cook doesn't mention the Rambam. It doesn't mention it. I think this is, uh, yeah, so I. I tend to think at this point this is not an accident. This, this trip is not an accident. That it's not a one-off. It's uh, Cook really thinks this, and I suspect that uh, when we look at it, we'll discover that um, this really is Rav Cook's notion of autonomy, and it probably plays out in uh, probably plays out in many ways. It might very well be that theologically he's going to solve the problem of how we can be Avdei Hashem, how we can be Avdei Hashem by saying that okay, there are good and bad kinds of Avdos, but there's nothing fundamentally wrong with being an Eved. It's just who's Eved. Right, right, that we talked about with well, right, you know, Avadai Heim, what do you mean? But you're being an Eved Hashem. So for some people that's a problem, and for some people it's not a problem. And really, fundamental free will is, who's, is what are you going to be an Eved, or whom are you going to be an Eved to? But you don't see autonomy as a value. You just see, give, you, just, right, you just see it as a problem to give it up for the wrong thing. So you're supposed well, to mashabit yourself to all sorts of good things. The Gemara sets up situations where there's a, you know, two-sided situations and yeah. Is it typically a situation where the Gemara is trying to address an imbalance and try and you know, rectify the imbalance to some extent by saying, you know, for instance, if, 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 if typically a worker is at a disadvantage in terms of market power, whatever, um, you know, the decision as to whether to be an Evid, you know, how hard to work, whatever. Then, the, you know, that situation where they'll typically they would say yeah, to, to, to try and. So I like to interpret, it, and I think that you know that I have that I have uh, adequate precedence. I like to interpret it as that that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's say there's not there's a machloket there's a machloket about so we saw whether yadol tachtona just means look here you're causing damage to the other party so you, right so we right. can't let you just break the contract but fundamentally our principle of autonomy stands. Or do we see Adol Tachtona as a way of enforcing the fundamental wrong of breaching a contract? Rav Cook, of course, takes the second position. Right? That, it, right, that the Adol Tachtona means that it's really awesome for you to do it. Because, right? And you're causing Nezek to the other party. Okay, sometimes all we can do is make you pay the Nezek. But if we could enforce specific performance, we would. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, you know, I, I think that you know, if I wanted a foil to, uh, right, to many of the arguments I made, right, Rav Cook would be the foil. Right, if I were giving a Rosenzweig share, where the first thing you do is set up all the right, set up the polls, right, and put names to all the polls. Rav Cook is the name of the poll. That, uh, that, and I, again, I, I am. Um, after to quote you know, for good or for ill, I took um, Professor Benjamin's Shalom's course for Rav Cook. Uh, of course, I took his course in Maral, but in his course on Maral, which taught me I didn't understand anything about Maral, I also we also. Learned a lot about Rav Cook, and then I read his book on Rav Cook, which is a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, but I came out a little cynical, um, and uh, it it makes sense to me 
from what little I know of Rav Kook, and even though I'm saying Rav Kook said almost everything under the sun, that Rav Kook would completely buy into the notion that autonomy, that true autonomy requires the capacity to enslave yourself. You can't enslave yourself in a really have autonomy, and so that this really is a defense of autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, look, that's not, it's not, it's not a, it's not at all, you know, you know if you, if your theology is that God wants free will submission, that makes perfect sense. And the reason God gives human beings free will because he wants us to surrender. So it's not interesting to have slaves who didn't have a choice. Right, so that's a perfectly respectable classical Jewish theology and contemporary Jewish theology, uh, right, in certain sections of orthodoxy. Um, you know, it's probably so like, you know, I have like, I think I can't talk, talk for my chest, I can talk for myself, right? That, you know, that the, the challenge of Rebbe in certain ways was that much as, you know, so much of me resonated with what he thought theologically, it was so inspiring to me, was in the end, he didn't question the idea of being an Evid Hashem at all. And that's what he was, which was beautiful and powerful and overwhelming and inspiring. And at the same time, that's, you know, it didn't bother him from what I could tell. And that was challenging to me. It does bother me. Um, you know, that's a, uh, any case, that's putting heavy theology on one shuva. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I think it's real. I think it's real. Okay, so let's take the, uh, okay, we're not going to go, we're not, we're not going to go through all of, uh, all of Rav Cook's arguments, but you'll, like, you'll see they're really quite astonishing, like where he, uh, where he, you know, he says, he says, you might think there are, you might think that there are sveko, but no, here it's, it's, it's a suffix iser, right? Maybe you're causing damage to other people, so you can't rely, even though ordinarily you're allowed to rely on a suffix here, it's usher if you to rely on the suffix. Um, he reverses kimle, instead of saying kimle the other way, he says, you should be choshesh, this position isn't halakha, but you should be choshesh for it, so you, could, you can't leave your job. Um, I really don't know. You know, I thought originally maybe Rakuk was just doing it because it was it was protecting the rabbi against blowback. Uh, but reading it again, it seems hard for me to uh, to buy into that. And I wonder whether it's not more the other way. Um, you know, the whole uh, the, the whole question about Marbury versus Madison is right. The cool thing about Marbury, one of the cool things about Marbury versus Madison, is that um, it it establishes judicial review in a case where. Um, what they end up doing is what the other side wants, so they won't appeal. Uh, right, because there's been a change of administrations meanwhile. So, right, so, 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 um, right, so, um, blanking on the, the Chief Justice, the Great Chief Justice, who established Marbury versus Madison. Marshall, right, Marshall, right, Marshall, so Marshall, right, so the, you know, the claim, right, that's the way Dean Hecht, you know, uh, so I taught it to us, right, is that, you know, is that, you know, as that Marshall found this awesome way of getting judicial review in, in a case where the, right, he's overruling, he's overruling the executive, but because the executive has shifted, so he, he overrules the executive in a way that the new executive, who's the party to the suit, wants. Uh, right, and so sort of Cook, maybe, he gets this in in a case where the party isn't outraged, because it's, right, because from the party's perspective, he didn't make him a slave, he freed him. Even though the precedent is, right, the precedent is enslavement, so I wonder if it isn't that. I don't know if Rav Cook thinks that you know, has that kind of strategic thinking. Um, I think that you know that this is, from a Lumdish perspective, this is in a different league than what we saw the first week. And this is a brilliant tshuva. Uh, right? He knows everything. He, he brings an astounding. You know, he has all the sources. And on the other hand, it's just um, 
Wow. Okay. So let's take a look at the Pesky Din Rabbanian. Um, um, now, this is a tshuva uh, from the late 20th century, uh, from Rabbi Avram Dov, Dov Levin, um, who is for a while on the, uh, on the uh, Beit Din Hagadol, I believe. Oh, this is not from the, um, from, right, from, this is not a Beit Din Hagadol sock, although I think it probably is written while he's on the um, Beit Din Hagadol. I think he, he was. He's, um, I have, you know, as we asked the question, I have seen his other tshuvot. Uh, I happen to be, I think, right, if I recall correctly, um, he wrote a tshuva being matir and aguna in a very particular case uh, some years ago. It was a fascinating thing because he put together, it was after he retired, and he put together an ad hoc betin to issue a, a, a bitul a kedushin psak. Uh, you know, and it was with people I think he would not ordinarily have, because he was fairly Haredi, and it was with Rav Bigman and, uh, and uh, Dr. Michal Avram from Barilan. Uh, they all wrote wildly different tribute. Uh, really a fascinating thing. And I really wondered whether that had not been, uh, historically, had not been a, I, th- I think, I just can't prove it, that it was a case that came up for him while he was on the Beitin um, Hagadol, and uh, he wasn't able to persuade his colleagues to go along, and it always was on his conscience. And so afterwards, he went back, and after he retired, and found a, and found a way to resolve the case. Um, but it, that, like you know, you read that show. That's a really serious show. So agree with it or not, but it's a really serious show. And everything I've read of his is really serious. So we are, we are in, we are, you know, say in, um, in, you know, in, in the world of major league. Uh, Major, major league contemporary Diana. Um, it was Nifter a few years ago, I think. But major league late twentieth century Diana, not necessarily Gadoli Hador. He does have that kind of public image. Uh, I don't know what he was like, but uh, you know, but as a Diana, he was a major. He was a major Diana. My own experience of his true vote is, um, it was that they always have to, you know, whether agree or not agree, you always have to take them with great seriousness. Uh, now, um, the Israeli Rabbanu creates a, um, you know. A different style of you have to write in in formal legal frameworks, which is different, right? So there, there isn't as much individuality as you have in classical chivot. Um, it's really about they didn't impose a style on, on, on really. You have to outline the issues. You would, right, you cite the you outline issues. You cite the sources, right? Because it basically has to be read by you know like the equivalent of law students. You have to be able to digest them rapidly. Uh, so if you taught to brief a case, right? So these are. Opinions written for the right for the sake of being brief. Uh, so just be aware of that. Right, it's not, it's not it's not the same thing as somebody writing a classical chuvah. So here we go. They're numbered by tick, but it's very hard to find things unless you reference them by page number. Even though I don't know they exist on, you know, they exist on paper anymore. Hypothetical page numbers. <laughs> I have never seen one on paper. Uh, so here's an Asadiyun. Harab Echad Tuvayat Rav Bet, Shemachain is Lok Ram Kamashanim, Shekami Amim Lifnei Tfilat Azman Achadash, Hechlit Lavor Yeshiva. Okay, so Rabbi, so Rabbi A, who is the Rosh Yeshiva, has Rabbi B as a, as a Ram, and Rabbi B announces several days before the Zman, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to another Yeshiva. So Rav, so Rav one wants bivakesh lasor al Rav Bet b'tzav minia lavor yeshiva. Right. So he wants he wants the um, the court the Beit Din to impose on Rabbi B a restraining order. Uh, right. That he's not allowed. He's not allowed to leave. Um, 
He wants to he wants to ban the right the the um, the the new yeshiva from accepting him. Okay, now Rabbi, Rabbi it's not clear if bet comes to bait in, right? Um, so far, Rabbi, Rabbi Rabbi A says Rabbi B told him that what are you talking about? I'm a pol poliyachalach zerba b'chaziheyo. Like pasuk, you know, how could you possibly stop me from leaving? And Rabbi Rabbi A argues back. What are you talking about? There's nobody, right? I don't have anybody who has your reputation. So that's a really interesting point, right? Is when we say that it's a devara aved, if you can't find the equivalent worker, does that mean you can't find someone who does the work equivalently? What if you're you can find lots of people who do the work equivalently, but what I'm hiring you for is your reputation because students don't come for what for the learning; they come for the reputation of the teacher. Or is he saying that he's not a poel, that he's a uman? Um, he hasn't. He says he can't. He frames it as I can't find someone to replace you, right? It's, it's right. If I could find someone to replace you, he could back out. So I don't think it's an uman couple on distinction. He's claiming that you are right. He's a number of eight because I can't replace you. But it's interesting to think he doesn't. You know, maybe this is a hundred He doesn't say you're the best teacher ever, and nobody could possibly replace you. He says people think you're the best teacher ever. <laughs> so, right? so, how can I, I possibly replace you? I don't know. Um, maybe reading too much into this dry, the dry legal language. Um, okay, um, right. But they both agree that they that 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 uh, he'll, that they've uh, right. They both say we've agreed that he's going to stay till Cheshvan, um, and that and stay till Cheshvan is more than thirty days. So there's a side issue which we don't have to look at, which is that the law requires thirty days notice. Um, right, you're allowed to be chosen b'chasiyayom, but you have to give thirty days notice. So they agreed. They agreed to delay his um, to delay to delay his his um, leaving long enough that he that we have thirty days notice. So we're gonna have to, we could talk about you know. How does thirty days notice relate to poel chazerba b'chatziyayom? Uh, right, all those sorts of things we could um, we could work out a fancy thing the way I worked out for the prenup, right? Where the where we say that you have a right to leave, you have the right to leave during the first thirty days of the job, but as of day thirty one, you have to have given thirty days thirty days notice. All right, so, right, so right, that's a way to preserve both values. It could be that uh, right that we we you know that we can create a presumption of davar of aid another. Another because it always because it always takes time to hire somebody in a complicated bureaucracy and all sorts of ways we could solve that issue. We're not going to deal with it in, in depth. It's not. It doesn't come up to our shul. Saktin, abakashul etzav mini anitches. Okay, right. So you know, no suspense here, right? Saktin and it's unanimous. Right? They know, right? There, there are sometimes there's sometimes are dissenting opinions, but the saktin is signed by is signed by all three members of the of the Beitin. That we right that we um, simply push aside the, um, the the request for a restraining order. Okay, why do we do it? Right, so he lists what the issue, what, he lists what the issues are, and let's well, let's watch the way they frame the the phrase. So the, so looking at, at the issue Aleph, so if he quotes the Gemara, right, the Gemara says Bal Vakamas Pol Yachaloch Zorba Bachtiyayom, and we pass in that way in Shulchan Aruch. Um, good. Okay, and the Ramah even goes so far as to say that you can't have a three a, a contract longer than three years, but the Shulchan Aruch says only davar haved, and the Ramah says if you're ready right, if you're chozerbo that can be davar haved. Okay, so right, all this is just citing basic sources. Now we get to the to the heart of it, and we kuroi, right? So we're about, about halfway down. Uh, so when the Ramah says that chozerbo is, is davar haved, that's because the Shut Maram quoted Ben Yoel and the Rabbiya. Right, so there's a 
one famous medieval tshuva that says a poel cannot, that a, a malame cannot retreat, um, and that's also in the Mordechai. But the Marit says, and there's another tshuva, right? Right, so we have two contradictory tshuva in right in in the literature of medieval Ashkenaz. One of them says Amlamid can't be closer. One of them says Amlamid can be closer. Uh, right, and so the Marit answers that the difference is between Lekapseda and Ikapseda. Right? And really, Amlamid is a poel, but the rules of a poel also that he can't be closer if that will cause damage to the Balabayas. The Balabayas even entitled to trick him into staying. Right, and another version of the same, of the same um, philicus in the Anshay Shem, really, where he says it depends whether they can find another worker, and then the Shema Avram talks about what are your standards for another kind of worker. Good, let's look at page two. We've quoted all the basic sources. Vinei mikor hadrasha avadai heim lavadim lavadim hibiteras koanim where God says, The reason you can't, Jews can't be Avadim to other human beings is that God says, I have a prior title. Uh, Right, so the, the, the core of the drasha is that God owns you, and therefore God can free you whenever he wants, because you can never be more than a subcontracted of it. God always owns the master contract. Okay, says, mm-hmm. So this was my favorite Makor this, right, of the whole year, right, where, they, mm-hmm. where the Baram says that employees are not Evid Ivri, but employees are, are, are better than Evid Ivri, so whatever protection we give for Evid Ivri, we have to give Kalva Homer to an employee. Right, because because Evid Ivri bears some moral responsibility for the power the other party has over them, but employees do not bear any moral responsibility for the power the other person has over them. They invite like you, they may Israel with you. Okay, so now he says, based on that, I'm sorry. So, if we say that we would allow a specific performance, then in fact we would turn people into slaves. How can that be? So, right, so really there are two... Um, Right, so he thinks there are, there are um, how could that position exist? Uh, this is the nafkimina between these two approaches as to whether in the end of the day we can turn somebody into a slave. Um, I'm not doing this right. He says, but he says the Maram says that, that the Maram says that, a, um, that an employee can never be an Evid, but the Marik seems to suggest that you could turn an employee into an Evid. And Nafkamina between these two biurim is according to Shut Marit, Bashar Ben Yechiel, the Mefarish, the Melamech Eno Socher Atma El Lishar Batala, Eni Acholach Zorbo Afogav Lovedavara Avid. Right, so he says the Nafkamina is going to be that um, that the, the, uh, the is going to be whether somebody who is not being paid directly for their work can be chosen. If you're only being paid for Schar Batala, 
Um, you can't be chosr bo, uh, even though there's no issue with dav- davar aved, because the whole reason is kalibi yisrael vadim, and here there's no abdus, because I'm not you're not, I'm not subordinate to you when I do my labor as a malamid. I'm doing what I want to do, and you're paying me because I could do something else. How could you possibly view that as abdus? If you say at the end of the day, right, anybody who is uh, anybody, anybody that the um, as long as you haven't violated Kilibin Israel Vadim, we protect you, so that he thinks we'll protect the Muhammad too. But if you think right, but um, but if we but if we think it's possible to make yourself an Evid, that's, that's not the right language. <laughs> not to me. Well, sorry. Um, I'll have to bracket it and say just say this, but what he, what he claims is that you can view the Skarbatala relationship as one in which it's not Abdud at all because you have no relationship to the employer. The fact that you have to do something is not what makes you an Evid. What makes you an Evid is, right, is, is somebody else having power, having, right, having power over God. Now you're there, Evid, not God's Evid. Here you are God's Evid. You're just doing what God, what God wants you to do. But I think that's only if you view it, right, if you view it entirely in, the, in those terms. If you view it as we're trying to protect people, which I think is the way Maram looks at it, we don't want people to have power over each other, then it's a very different issue. So then, okay, the fact is, right, we're forcing him to work. So that's his nafkamina. Um, um, okay. So the Chesed um, says that the, Marit, that the Marit's explanation of this is correct. Um, but he so he thinks the underlying the underlying correct interpretation is that any time you're a poel who can't be chazer you really do turn out to be an evet. But an evet to the balabayit, though it doesn't apply to a malamed because a malamed is not an evet to the balabayit. But he says, "Balavir tshuvas maimonish a poel lo gora me evet ivri shiyotze bigiron kesef." He thinks according to the uh, according to the um, Maharam, so this Malamed certainly has not violated Kili Ben Yisrael Vadim. As long as he hasn't violated Kili Ben Yisrael Vadim, why would we impose? Why would we make him not extend him all the restrict all the protections of an employee? Right, so fundamentally, the way he the, the he thinks that the Maram says, and I think, and you know, this is the way the position I like to take. Also, he thinks that what the Maram says is that if you sell yourself as an Ebed Ivri, so then to some extent we stop protecting you. But if we, if you sell yourself as, but if you are a poel, you haven't violated anything, and so we do everything possible to protect you from any situation where you lose your freedom. It's not that you're. It's not that you're. It's not that. God star is kodem, and so we don't want you to be an evid to a human being, because we don't want you to be an evid. And that's that. I think is his. That's his outcome. That's his outcome. Okay. Um, now we get to the psak. Right? It says, Moshe Prishka, the kaven the ika pluk to the malamed achosibro yihavikipol yachol hamalamed lomor kimli. Right. So his psak is right the same psak as the cheshavayvod. And the end of the day is right. As long as there's a position that the malamed had, the malamed is free. So the malamed can can hold that way. So practically, that's how we paskin. You can be choserbo because whenever the other party chooses to impose it on you, you can say tough. 
Gimli. Okay. Um, right. So then he says, "What about the machlok?" Right. So there's also a machlok about the uh, about the about the question of whether you can leave for a better paying job. And his answer is, "Yeah." Well, guess what you can say, Gimli. Kelly means that I can, you're, you're trying to impose something on me, and I can say, but I hold like the other sheet, the, and Mamanos. No, no, no. Kimli is a, sorry. Kimli in Chosh Mishpat is a rule that when, that a defendant is allowed to adopt any legal theory that has not been explicitly rejected. That makes it very. That's why the the Mosul almost always wins because you're not because because we don't usually that's that's why I talk about this that's why the Choshen that's why in Shulchan Aruch sorry in Choshen Mishpat Dafka the Shulchan Aruch has to matter because the rule the only thing that prevents that allows us to do any kind of things other than just giving the money back to the Mosuk is saying that if, if a Shita wasn't quoted in Shulchan Aruch it doesn't count what I point out is that as the world changes all you need is a good lawyer there's always going to be a position you can say Kimli. And that's why we talked about this. Why, but one of the reasons the Bazi didn't always have to always have to write in the Starberian Shara Karv Ladin. Because in Din, the Muxa could always win. Because in Din, we would always say, the Muxa can always say Kimli. Um, okay. Um, interestingly, he quotes, he, uh, he, he, right, he quotes, he quotes Rav Kook, but let's read the line again. Right after the underlying section, Ayn Aruch Shulchan, writes Ayn Aruch Shulchan, Simon Shin Lam and Gimel. Even if you're causing a damage, right? We saw this, right? We mentioned this a little bit earlier. It still doesn't impose specific performance. Um, and he says, right? So according to the according to the um, according to the one position, that's not um, right. That that that's not correct. The other position is correct. But according to the, to the Maram that he likes, we don't care why he wants to break the contract. So in the end, Sakalacha is that we don't care. Right? We don't care. Right? The worker can always break their right, the, right, the, the worker can always break their contract. There's nothing the worker can do other than selling themselves explicitly as an evidivri that will take away the protections we extend to an evidivri plus. And we don't care what the motive for the employee, the employee for backing out if for back for backing out is we give the employee right we give the employee that we give we give the employee that freedom. So I, I am comfortable saying like really we have um, right we have yeah, those are the two the two extremes you have Rav Cook uh, right you have, you have Rav Cook who is the pre the pre Lochner Supreme Court uh, you have the the current Israeli Beitin which is a modern court. Uh, right, which you know, which which understand which understands the role of the courts as being to protect workers against power imbalances, and then interestingly, you have um, you have the uh, the of Eifod, who what I would say is um, somebody with an older sensibility dealing with the reality of the law has developed this way. And so, right, so he right, it's true, right. The, the, right, he ends up fundamentally saying halacha. You would end up in the same place as Rev, as Rev Levin does. You would have to end up saying Kimli, but he 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 right. He's he's fighting, his, kicking, and screaming against that Kimli, and whatever discretion he has, he's going to impose specific performance because it doesn't seem right to him that you entered into a deal and now you can just break it. And Rev Levin doesn't have a problem. That's what the law is supposed to do. Uh, now I could tell you right that you know that the law. And, uh, you know, that means that halacha is the way the Rabbanit Paskins it, but the answer is, but then we don't have enough cases. 
Uh, right? What you can say is that there is somebody not a you know not not a not a not a wild you know modern Zionist, um, but a, yeah, but a, a classic Haredi Dayan who interpreted the halacha the way I've been basically arguing for it um, all year is that it's intended right, that it's intended to create you know, enormous worker uh, worker 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 mobility and protection. Again, so you have Rav Cook, uh, right, who doesn't right, doesn't have that notion at all, and then you have the Cheshmei Fud who thinks that um, maybe this has gone too far. Uh, but, that's really, but that's really the way halacha has worked out. Um, part of it is that you know, Berlevin is sitting on a Beitin that really has power. And a Beitin that really has power has to, has, right, has to set precedence and create law in a way that a Beitin that functions on persuasion doesn't have to. Right, that may be a function of the roles they play. Okay, question. When we were starting this yeah. sugya, like way back when, um, the the kind of work where you know people doing work on a house or people painting a painting a wall, um, right? And and this these like modern psak that we're taking a look at is all you know communal communal rabbis and teachers. Um, if would the way that they're framing things, I mean, very specifically apply, you know, specifically in, in regarding bottle and stuff, would it be? Would it be very, very different if it was, you know, I two, two people came and, you know, they had a dispute about painting a wall? I mean, would there be a lot? So I think Rav Levin, you know, what I think is you, you, have, you, know, you have to, um, you have to, um, I'm witnessing the word, but you're projecting, you know, the rays of decisions. I think what Rav Levin, what you, um, extrapolating, I think Rav Levin, you know, it sounds like to me like Rav Levin would have, uh, he said, look, we, every machloket we paskin in practice like the side that doesn't end up with specific performance. And every employee, or everything, and every, every employment contract is, the employee is not in the violation of Kedib Yisrael Abedim, so I don't care what kind of employee they are, our job is to protect them. Now, we, you know, would, how extreme would he go that way, right? You know, how, many relation, how many fake Kablanis relationships would he see through and say, no, you're really a poet? Uh, right, right, all right. There. I can't tell you, but I think that I, you know, say like that. That's the jurisprudence. You know, you would Rav Levin in that system would emerge as the great, right, as the great champion of right of labor of labor freedom. And what would he say in the case of an actual kablan? Uh, you would say that you have to right. You're all you're but you're still free. You never enforce specific performance. And because just like an Ebed Ivri can always buy their way out. So every other worker can buy their way out. And then the Paschal and the Shofan Aruch says, not only can you buy your way out if you have cash, you can even buy your way out by taking it as a loan. Right? So I think, I think that he would take, and he, and most, right, just about, he doesn't take that position in this Shuvah, but I think that that's, easy, that's in Shofan Aruch, so it's really easy to take that position. Right? Since that's the way the Shofan Aruch Paschals, I think he would end up right, with, that, with that kind of jurisprudence. Uh, at, least, you know, at least the theory that he sets out in this Shuvah would end up there. Now, what would happen if you... You know, if you know, if he looked at what was going on economically, if he tried this and discovered that it was being destructive, yeah, I don't know. You know, like I don't, I don't know. You know what the the arbitrator who first freed Andy Messersmith in Major League Baseball and destroyed the reserve clause, right? You know, and created the whole free agency system. You know, maybe if he looked at the salary cap system now, he would say, "Oh my God!" Right? You know, we have we have like people whose skills are doing minor things being paid millions and millions of dollars. Right. What that? What is it? Why, you know, why should that make sense? We should have the extremely rich cap- capitalists taking all that. I mean, all right. We, you know, it's driving right. But he's correct. He's been correct. It's driving all sorts of other. You know, you say 
we're taking money away from the capitalists, but we're not. We're making tickets unaffordable for right for the for the middle class because we have to pay the salaries, right? That they can and they can pay because they can charge us money, but you can't. But you know, but teams don't have the discretion anymore to sell tickets at prices that are affordable to the middle class. Right? Teams don't have the discretion of building stadiums that don't have all the amenities, which means that everyone has to chip into right to build the roads and things like that. So I could see. Right, they're arbitrating. Look, I thought free agency was a great thing, but it turns out in the end it needs to be restrained in some way. Um, right, you could, you could, right, you could. All of uh, all sports end up with restraints on competition contracts, but they end up with salary caps because otherwise you can't sustain a competitive league. How would halacha deal with the with, with the environment? You have multiple, we have multiple employers who have to aggregate. Uh, right, because too much employee mobility destroys the right, destroys the industry. They think you know, we don't know, right? We've never, we haven't tried a, a professional sports league with pickup games so far. Uh, you know, where every, where everyone just bids before the game, right? As to which, which, right, as to which player, which player goes on which team, right? It sounds ridiculous, to us. Right? So we think, okay, there, there has to be some way in which, in which um, employees can bargain, bargain away. I taught at the very beginning, right? That training, right, in sports teams gives you a model, right? That you want, you want teams to, to have to invest in their development. And the only way you do that is by giving up, right, your, your free agency years, right? So how would, I can't tell you how Rebbe Levin would deal with that. What I think I can show you is that he, is that he, and I think that, I think the contrast to Rav Cook is clear, um, right, that he doesn't, right, that he thinks that we stand in the way, right? And Halacha just says, no, you can't get the specific performance, and Rav Cook says, why not? That's clear, and I think the contrast to Cheshav Eifod is clear, the Cheshav Eifod says, yeah, that's why Halacha Halakha will end up that way because of Kimli, but that's bad, so I'm going to intervene personally to stop it. As opposed to Rev. Levinger just says, no, you lose. <laughs> hey, what's, you know, that's not, you know, you know, make, you create an environment where your employees don't want to jump. Your employees want to jump, so that's right, so that's fine. And so I think, you know, you know, what I try to argue like, all the way through is that um, Halakha is always in process, and it really matters which postkim end up, right, end up being the ones who answer the to answer the Shilohs, and to some extent, you know, some extent it's uh, people are just sitting and learning Gemara, but some, people have, but people also have really deep values. Really, right, right, and, and, and philosophic positions, and you would say like, why, you know, this is employment law, right? You know, that's, right, you're crazy if you think that theology <laughs> affects employment law, but no, maybe Rav Cook's employment law comes straight out of his theology, right? So I want, right, so you know, so that's what, so that's that's the. The point I make over and over again, right, is that uh, you know, is that halacha is uh, develops out of everything, and every position matters, and that um, you know that you have to fight for the halacha you think is right, because uh, it's not just going to happen. It could be the, you know these are both t- legitimate Torah positions, um, and it really makes a difference which one, uh, right? Which right, who gets asked the shilohs about employment law? Totally different system. All right. Thank you all so much for this was such a uh, this was such a such such a joy to give this year. I hope that it'll get written up in ways that uh, that uh, that it deserves eventually. Um, and uh, I hope I will look forward to. I hope that you'll all come this summer. I hope we'll set up soon, like what the Germany. Maybe I'll give some version of this in a way that that's, that that uh, synthesizes, but also does some new stuff and stuff we've done. Um, and I hope that we'll find a way to learn together again. Um, after the summer as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming, Professor. Uh, all right. Do you have a theme for the for the summer baby midrash? Uh, summer midrash has a theme. Summer midrash is doing tchumen.